Shana Tova. A happy, healthy, and sweet new year to you, to your family, and to your loved ones. This past March, towards the middle end of the month, I got a very strange phone call from my dad. He was distraught, he was upset, he was clearly fighting back tears. I said, Dad, what's wrong? He said, I can't take your mother anymore. I said, Dad, talk to me. He says, look, we've been fighting, we've been bickering. Pathos a few days away, I'm going into the motel, I'm not spending Yantif with this woman. I said, Dad, try to be as compassionate as I could. This happens. This happens in marriage. It happens whether you've been married for two years or 20 years, or in his case, 52 years. It happens. We sometimes fight and bicker. I said, Dad, just calm down. Get perspective. He said, I have calmed down. I've thought about this a lot. These are the golden years of my life, and I don't want to spend them fighting and bickering. And I'm just going to this hotel, and this is what I'm doing, and I just need you to know. I was totally caught off guard for this phone call. I wasn't expecting it in any way. It's supposed to be the other way around. I'm supposed to make those phone calls to my parents and seek their advice and their counsel when I have a challenge, not the other. I said, Dad, I'm going to call you back in a couple of minutes. And I did the only thing I knew how to do, which was to call my two brothers and say, help. (laughs) So I called my brother Elliot in Atlanta. I called my brother Larry in Detroit. We conferenced them together. And apparently they received the phone call before I did. And their pulse was rushed, they were nervous, and we didn't know what to do. And we went back and forth with all these ideas and tactics, but we had agreed. If God forbid any of us were in trouble, our parents would be there for us, and we had to reciprocate. Got to be there for them. So we agreed. It was a crazy time in all of our lives, but we were going to go down. Right before Pesach, we're going to go down, we're going to do an intervention, and see what we could do to help. So three of us are on the phone, and we conference in my father, and the four of us are now talking, and we say, look, Dad... We hear you, we know you, we love you. We're asking for 36 hours. We're going to get an airline ticket, we're going to come down there, and we're going to talk to you, and we're going to work this thing through. Just be patient and give us 36 hours. Reluctantly, my father agreed, but he said, hurry up. (laughs) So we thought he had hung up the phone, but he's not so technologically savvy. And instead, he started calling out in the room to my mother. And the three of us were listening to every word he was saying. What's he going to say? What's going to happen? He screams, Barbie, Barbie. She goes, what is it, Bill? Great news. I convinced the kids to come for Pesach. That didn't really happen. (laughs) But I have your attention, and I want to tell you something that did happen this past year that I've noticed more than ever before. And that's my parents aren't getting any younger, and there's been a lot of role reversals in our lives. As time grows, their needs are growing as well. And I'm not quite sure how to manage that phenomenon. I have prepared for a lot in my life. I prepared for school, I prepared for marriage, for children, for my home, for even this job. But I feel totally ill-prepared for the language of diagnosis, hospitals, and long-term care. Maybe you feel the same. Our congregation has a great demographic of long-time members. And we have a great new growing demographic of younger members. 
people who are in their 20s and 30s, many of them having their second and third child, coming over from the city and making the New Jersey suburbs their home and joining our community. But our sweet spot, our biggest demographic, are those of you that are here today who are 35 to 55. And perhaps you have a kid who's in elementary school, and perhaps you have a kid who's in college. But that is the fattest demographic of our entire congregation. And in many cases, while your kids are growing up, your parents are growing older too. And they're requiring a lot more attention. And sadly, many are getting sick, and many are dying. Sometimes the process is quick, sometimes it's painful and long. But either way, it's draining, and they are uncharted waters. We are part of what is called the sandwich generation. We are sandwiched between caring for the needs of the generation that preceded us and caring for the needs of the generation that will follow us. According to Gallup, 41% of baby boomers today are taking care of the needs of an aging parent. And 8% of them say that they have an aging parent living with them currently. And 34% responded that they're not currently taking care of the needs of an aging parent, but they anticipate doing so in the next two to five years. And they're very worried. They're worried about what it's going to do to them emotionally. They're worried about what it's going to do to them financially. And they're worried about how they're going to manage their already hectic and crazy life. The obligation to aging parents is not the only obligation that a caregiving child deals with. We're caught in the middle. We are simultaneously pulled in so many directions by competing and compelling claims, from raising our kids to satisfying our spouses, managing our careers, building homes, and not to mention our own social lives. And those factors can lead us to a life riddled with guilt and with frustration when caring for the needs of an elderly parent enters into the mix. Eating a sandwich is great. Being the sandwich is not. Even Tony Soprano and his sister Janice wrestled with the benefits, the drawbacks, the financial burdens, and the overall public statement of dealing with his aging mother. It was a brilliant angle to the show that the creators realized. Because what was the show about? It wasn't about an impervious mob boss. It was about an impervious mob boss who deals with the same stuff that you and I deal with. He dealt with bickering with his wife, raising his children that were rebellious, stressful work relationships, and everything that goes with it. And guess what the creators added to the mix? What did they add to the mix? The aging mother, whose name was Livia in the show. And it shows how Tony wrestled with this issue and eventually what becomes her entry into Green Grove Nursing Facility and the emotions that follow for her and for him. And as was the case with Tony in the show, witnessing our parents' age and caring for them in the process of an already crazy and hectic life can make us feel more torn and can add a lot more stress. It seems to me that not all relationships with parents are the same. In many ways, parents are a lot like belly buttons. Some are innies, and some are outies. Some we pick at to see what comes out. Some we ignore and never think about until we see them. Some we show to the world with pride. And some people hide theirs for fear of embarrassment and shame. Some people show it off to be stylish. Today, some people even put jewelry in their belly button. But guess what? Regardless of how we view and relate to our belly button... We all got one. And so is the same with parents. Regardless of how we relate, 
connect, interact, appreciate with our parents, whether they are living or they have left this world. Each and every person in this room has a mother and a father, just like those belly buttons. I think God realized this too. If you look at the fifth commandment of the Aseret Adibrot, of the Ten Commandments, it is a hybrid commandment. The first four commandments that were given are commandments between our fellow human beings and God. And the subsequent five commandments that were given are between our fellow human beings and their fellow human beings. But the fifth commandment found in the middle is a hybrid. It's about how we connect to God and how we connect to others in the process. It teaches us in the fifth commandment, We should honor our parents, respect our parents, so our days will be elongated. It's a hybrid commandment because we have to both appreciate and respect God and appreciate and respect our fellow human in the process. Mind you, we're never told to love our parents. The Torah is not afraid to use the word love. We're told to love our neighbor. We're also told to love the Lord your God. The Torah tells us to respect our parents, to honor our parents. The text is noticeably silent when it comes to how we're supposed to feel emotionally towards our parents. I believe it's because the Torah is intimately familiar with the complexity of the parent-child relationship. Maybe that's the exact reason why Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the great sage, once said that of all the 613 commandments to fulfill, honoring our parents is of the most difficult. There's a Yiddish folktale that is told about a mother bird flying high over a river with three of her baby birds in her beak. She asked the very first bird, when I'm old, will you carry me over the river? The baby answers, of course I will, it will be my honor. The mother bird responds, you lie, and drop the bird into the river to fend for itself. (laughs) Then ask the second bird, when I'm old, will you care for me and do the same for me, and carry me over the river? The second baby bird says, of course I will, it will be my honor. And the mother bird says, you lie. And drop the bird to fend for itself in the river. And then the third bird is asked the same question, but the third bird responds differently. The third bird says, no, mother bird, I can't do this for you when you get older. I'm going to be too busy carrying my own babies over the river. I won't have enough time to carry you two. This Yiddish tale tells us three things at the same time. First, it tells us that all children will respond differently to their parents when asked the same question. Secondly, it tells us that our intentions and our actions aren't always the same. And lastly, it teaches us that we can never fully repay our parents for the care they give us and the way that they love us. When we think of babies being born and people growing old, I'm reminded of the thought that sometimes... We cannot decipher what is a sunrise and what is a sunset, but for the very direction that we are looking. The needs of the child and the elderly at times can feel the same, like a sunrise and a sunset. When a baby is born, we intuit their needs. I think that I undoubtedly wore that look that I see so many times when a young couple brings their newborn onto the bima for either a bris or a baby naming. That look that they wear on their face that says, oh my God, what am I doing? (laughs) This child is all of eight or ten days old. It's swaddled, it's crying, it's flailing. And the parents look absolutely lost. They don't know which direction to turn. And they have one question. How am I going to care for this thing? 
How am I going to look after this thing? But with time, with guidance, with patience, support, new parents figure it out. They learn how to hold, change, swaddle, and feed that baby. And many times it's the grandparents that are integral in calming those fears and teaching those lessons. I remember my children's pediatrician, a guy who I think the world of, Dr. Michael Levy in Manhattan, who saw that very look on my face when Eve was all of four days old. And I was asking 150 questions, not one of them that was sensical in any way. He put his hand on my shoulder in a very paternal and calming fashion, and he said, David, the most important thing you can do for your baby is to love her. If you love her, all should be fine. That counsel helped me a lot in looking after our daughter and our son as they grew older. And I share that counsel with that, those families who have that look on their face. But here's my question. Who gives us the counsel for our aging parents? Who puts their hand on our shoulders? Who calms our fears and teaches us what it is that we're supposed to do? What do we do when love alone doesn't satisfy their changing and growing needs? A lot changes when the pendulum swings from growing up to growing old. And caring for aging parents can have unwanted side effects. Most notably, it can unlock the hidden dysfunctions of family relationships. It can open up old battle wounds and it can start new ones. When kids grow up, we marvel at the sunrise. We relish their independence. Babies learn to crawl, walk, talk, use the bathroom, get dressed by themselves. That makes our lives easier. And each kid loves their independence. And we begin to measure our success when kids graduate to full-time school and sleepaway camps. And they become less and less dependent upon us. We joke when our support transfers from carpool to credit cards, but deep down, that's something that we actually look forward to. It's sunrise. It's child-rearing. It's filled with optimism and opportunity. And when our children achieve those respective goals in life, there's part of us that sticks our chest out, that takes incredible pride in what they have accomplished. We had a hand in that success. We are part of the ingredients that led to them graduating college, we think, to securing a successful and meaningful job. We crafted the philanthropists that they are today, the community activists that they are today. We're a part of that. That's what we call in our tradition, nachos, pure and simple, unadulterated pride. But when we pivot, when we pivot to the sunset, and we see our parents growing old and their health begin to fail, we have worry in place of nachos. We have confusion in place of direction. We have disappointment in the place of reward. As we evolve to sunsets, we go from walking to using a walker, from eating freely to limited diets and limited control of one's body. Sunsets mean more restrictions and more medicines and failing senses and memories. Growing old means moving from sunrise to sunset, from independence to dependence. And that swing over the horizon can be a painful and pride-swallowing experience for us, and especially for our loved ones who are growing older. I want to share a personal story with you this morning. My father and mother, this past spring, decided to come up and visit myself and Dory and their grandchildren. This story really happened. (laughs) My parents live in Florida, and when I was born, I had one grandparent alive. So the idea that my children can develop and appreciate relationships with four of their living grandparents 
is a priceless blessing for both me and for Dory. It was a sunny and an exceptionally hot day when my parents landed at the airport, and Dory was picking them up. Dory is a doctor's kid, and she's quite an astute person. And she quickly surmised when she saw my dad that all wasn't right with him. So she pulled over at a gas station, said she had to make a work call, and she discreetly called me privately. She said, look, David, I'm not a doctor, but something's wrong with your dad. And I think he had a stroke. He was walking with a strange gait, his smile was asymmetric, and his speech was slightly slurred. And he looked very pale and seemed weak. My dad is a very stubborn man. Luckily, I'm not. (laughs) When Dory quite carefully asked if he was feeling all right, he said, yeah, I'm feeling fine, but I'm pretty tired from the trip. But she knew, and perhaps even he knew, that everything wasn't okay. So instead of going from the airport to home, she drove directly to Inglewood Hospital. And there I met them. And when I walked in the doors of Inglewood Hospital, I saw three quarters of our congregation, all wearing white coats. And they took absolutely amazing care of my father. And for that matter, they took amazing care of my mother and me too. And while each person gave a lot of attention and deference to the rabbi and his family, I have no question in my mind for a minute that the person in the bed next to us got the same attention, love, and care. Indeed, my dad had a stroke, a minor one. That's what the doctors told us. But if you ask him, he'll tell you he was just really tired and needed a break. My father, he wanted to go home. He wanted to see his grandkids. But the doctors wanted to keep him in the hospital for a few nights for observation. My father wanted to take a certain medicine for the way it was going to make him feel. But the doctors didn't want him taking that medicine for fear it could cause another stroke. My father insisted on being able to get up and go to the bathroom by himself, but the nursing staff insisted that he use help or a walker for fear that he could trip or fall, perhaps even in the middle of the night, lose his balance. I don't share these stories with you to question the doctors. They were all amazing. I don't share these stories with you to put my father out there in a way that would cause him any shame or embarrassment. I love my father far too much for that. And I don't share this with you for the catharsis that commiserating about it publicly could offer. Rather, I share this with you to highlight the dilemma of how we negotiate respecting our parents and at the same time respecting our parents' wishes. This could be the very hardest part of parent-rearing, of raising our parents. Making decisions that we know and believe are the best for our parents, while at the same time maintaining all of their wishes and demands and their concerns too. How exactly does one maintain their parents' dignity while offering them the exact best care that they need? Many times, what we want for our parents is not what they want. How do we respect them if we feel the choices that they're making aren't in their best interest? So I ask you, what's more respectful? Ignoring their wishes and doing what's right? Or offering them the independence they feel is fleeting them? And they desperately cling on to for a semblance of the old, the familiar and the necessary to make them feel alive and hopeful. And most importantly, for the respect that they have earned and deserve. You have a fellow congregant that's sitting amongst you today who came into my office in tears not long ago. She cried to me, Rabbi, I need help. I don't know what to do. My father needs to go to a home, an assisted living facility. The doctors all tell me, It's too dangerous for him to be in his condition at his own home, and I don't have the capability to look after him at my home. But the thing is, Rabbi, 
I promised him I would never do that to him. What do I do? I know the place that I want to send him is fantastic. It's the best care. It's a Jewish home. It will offer him all the things that are familiar. But I don't want to break that promise. Is there an answer to give this person in my office? I turn to the texts. And the example I gave here was the story of Yosef, of Joseph, who after he was sold into slavery and then later found out by his father, his brother, he turned and he said in Hebrew, Odavichai, is my father still alive? After being separated from his siblings and his family, the first question that comes from his mouth is, is dad still living? When they answered yes, what was it that he did? Joseph knew that the fact that he was lost would age his father. Joseph knew that his father's wife, Rachel, who was his mother, meant so much to him, and that she had died in childbirth and giving birth to his brother Benjamin. Joseph knew that his father was older and frail, so he decides to send for his father Jacob to come and live with him. He doesn't choose to go home, rather he comes to his son, where his son is established, where his son is comfortable, where his son is better prepared to make decisions and care for his aging father's needs without compromising his promotion and his state and Pharaoh's empire as the viceroy. What's noticeable in the text is what's missing. Joseph never once asked for his father's wishes, never once asked about his welfare. He just decides to bring him to live with him. Was there tension in that decision? Did Joseph worry about his father's dependence or independence? Was the move difficult? Could Joseph have cared for his father from a distance? And what would have happened if Joseph decided to go home and care for him? The entire faith of the Jewish people would have been radically different. We wouldn't have had an exodus. We wouldn't have been slaves in Egypt. Our life could have been totally different. But for that decision. So I ask you, is the story of Joseph and his father Jacob any different than the story of the congregant who cried in my office that I just shared with you? Respecting our parents and respecting their wishes is a tricky line. It's a thin line. It's a technicolored line. It's sometimes impossible to walk that line. Let's take it a step further for a minute. What do we do when we say, it's not worth the fight with mom and dad? It's not worth the argument. It's not worth their blood pressure or my blood pressure growing up as a result of this. It's causing me to be too sick, too upset, too angry, or perhaps even too poor in the process. What do we do with faith with choices of our best interests versus our parents' best interests? How do we decide? On one hand, the Torah teaches us to honor our parents. But wasn't it Hillel who once said, If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? This sea change in the parent-child relationship is a very awkward place to be. My father, he was always the sagacious one. He was always the one that everyone in our family, both our nuclear family and our entire family, aunts, uncles, and cousins, they always turned to him for advice, for counsel, for direction. He was always the guy sitting in the driver's seat of the family station wagon, piloting us down the highway on some family vacation as my mother sat in the co-pilot seat, four kids in the back seat, and he was always able to turn around and swat us from misbehaving and never change a lane in the process. (laughs) And my mother, 
My mother was always a person who worked full time, who kept an incredible home, who raised four children, and could whip up dinner for 12 without breaking a sweat. Now, when I go to Florida, I'm the one driving him to doctor appointments. I'm the one telling him how important it is for him to take his medicines and how important it is for him to find time to exercise. And I make sure to stop at the grocery store and help my mother cook. When did the role switch? Being in the driver's seat of my parents' car, both literally and figuratively, can almost feel sacrilegious. How am I supposed to act? Is this my 15 minutes to get revenge on all the things they put me through in my childhood? Or is this my time to dole out love and compassion? even when it doesn't come as naturally to us. We are not the first to wrestle with these ideas and notions. Just take a look at the Torah reading that we read today and tomorrow, and I want us to consider something from a different vantage point. We know in the story of the Akedah that Isaac is summoned by God to be sacrificed by his father Abraham. He says, Take your son, the son you love, the one that's an only child, and take Isaac and go up to the mountain where you offer him as a sacrifice to me. So Abraham takes two helpers with him and goes to the foot of the mountain. And then he tells the two helpers, Stay here at the bottom of the mountain. I can handle it from here. It reminds me very much of what I saw when I was on any of our trips to Israel this summer or even here at the shul when an elderly person comes on the bima or needs help. We always, out of a sign of respect, offer our hand to help them. And nine out of ten of them will say, I can do it on my own. I have independence. I don't need your help. They appreciate the gesture, but they don't want to be dependent. Which is almost what Abraham does when he says to his helpers at the foot of the mountain, you stay here. I can take care of this commandment by myself. And what does he do? He takes him up to the mountain and he's about to sacrifice him and in a dramatic fashion the angel intervenes. But here's a question I have for you. This is Abraham. And what do we know about Abraham at this time? We know one thing. We know one thing that's told in the text after he returns from the Akedah of the almost sacrifice. The text says, Abraham's a king. Abraham had become old. We know he was over 100 years old because at 99 he circumcised himself and his 8-day-old son Isaac and his 13-year-old son Ishmael. We know that he had become elderly. Is there a chance that maybe this act of sacrificing his son was a moment of saying that the age of Abraham had taken control of his best choices and his faculties? Let me give you one other proof text to think about. If we go back in our story of the Bible, which we don't read today, but we read in the story in the order, just three chapters earlier, we learn about a different Abraham, a younger Abraham. An Abraham who had the power, the conviction, and the courage to argue with God. He said, God, there's this town called Sodom and Gomorrah, and terrible things are happening there, and you want to destroy it, God, but don't do it. And it begins a bartering process, a communication back and forth with God saying, don't destroy the town because there might be 50 righteous people in the town. There might be 40 and 30 and 20 and eventually the 10. But he advocates on behalf of the Jewish people. He uses his voice on behalf of the people. He wants to try and save a town. We fast forward three chapters. God tells him to take your son. And he's silent. He does it without question. And the only thing we know to happen in between that time is Abraham got older. Is there a chance, perhaps, that this troubling story of the Akedah is a result that Abraham had begun to lose some of his better choices and faculty in the process of aging? 
and the aging process in our relationship with our kids is not something unique to Abraham. Look at his son Isaac. Isaac gives birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is born first, Jacob second, but Jacob gets the birthright because he tricks his father Isaac out of it. And how does he trick his father out of it? His father becomes blind in his old age. His sight fails. We don't have doctors in that time. We don't know if it was macular degeneration or maybe it was retinitis pigmentosa. He couldn't see. Whatever it was, he couldn't see the person. So what happens? Jacob dresses up like Esau and he takes advantage of the failing faculties of his father Isaac and securing the birthright, which then leads to an incredible fight between Jacob and between Esau. These are just two examples. Patriarchs and matriarchs, different processes for aging, a different perspective to see things from. None right and none wrong, just an ancient understanding that caring and relating for parents wasn't so different for our patriarchs as it is for us either. I think perhaps the hardest part and the saddest reality of this journey in growing old and watching our parents grow old is the inevitability that no matter what we do, no matter how much we sacrifice, no matter how much we spend, the end of the aging process is death. It's very sad, but it's true. With our kids, please God, we should all be blessed to see them grow and flourish. But with our parents, sunsets fade into nightfall and darkness. There are no signs of incredible triumph. Rarely is there a 180 degree turnaround. No miraculous victories. We only celebrate a little bit more time. We celebrate better quality of life. But no matter what we do, eventually the sun will set. And that's the reason why so many people in this room have said to themselves and they've said to me and they've said to others that when they care for aging parents, they feel like failures and they're riddled with guilt. Because so many of you have stood next to me at Cedar Park and cried and said, why couldn't I do more? Not realizing that they gave 110% of themselves in being part of that sandwich, while at the same time never compromising their lives and the needs of the rest of their family. That they modeled the very best values in Judaism and our tradition for others to follow. Sometimes, no matter what we do, we can't stop the sun from setting. And that's why we must charge ourselves to see things from a different perspective. Ultimately, that's what this entire holiday is all about. I want to share a story with you. A story about a frail old man who went to live with his son and his daughter-in-law and their four-year-old grandson. His four-year-old grandson, the son and daughter-in-law's four-year-old child. The son had been quite successful. And he had built an incredible and powerful home. And he liked to flaunt his success. So every meal that they ate, they ate on the most beautiful silk tablecloths. And they ate out of the most expensive, rare bone china. And they sipped from the finest and rarest and most expensive wines. The father who had come to live with them as a result of his age had become frail. His hands trembled. His eyesight blurred. His step faltered. But the family ate every meal together. And at every meal, the father would pick up the glass of wine and it would spill on the silk tablecloth. Or he would try and pass the rice and it would break the beautiful bone china. 
And eventually, after week after week of losing tablecloths and china and wasting wine, the son says to the daughter-in-law, I can't take this anymore. It's such a waste of money and resources. We can't have grandpa continue to sit at the table and have all the tablecloths get ruined, all the wine wasted, all the china break. We just can't do this anymore. So instead, the next day, they took a small table, they put it in the corner, they put plastic on the floor and plastic on top of the table, and gave grandpa a wooden bowl to eat from. A wooden bowl that couldn't break. A few days later, the four-year-old child was playing with Lincoln Logs a few minutes before breakfast. And as he was playing, the father said, Son, what are you making? He said, I'm making a bowl. The father said, That's great. Is that a bowl for Grandpa to eat a cereal out of? He said, No. It's a bowl for you and Mom to eat from when you get older. The words so struck the parents that they were speechless. And then tears started to stream down their cheeks. And though no word was spoken from that moment onward, the family ate the very best foods, the finest wines, on the nicest threads of silk tablecloth, and on the rarest china together. And even though some broke and some spilled, it never bothered them from that moment forward. Of the most important values we learn in our tradition, that fifth commandment smack in the center of the ten teaches us how we relate to God how we relate to others it will demonstrate to us how we believe and how we behave it will be the last love our parents see and feel in this world and it will be the blueprint for how we are loved and how we are treated as well we learn in the Babylonian Talmud that Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi once said to his kids be careful to respect an old person who has forgotten what he has learned through no fault of his own but due to illness or the pressures of earning a livelihood, because it has been taught, both the whole tablets and the broken pieces of the original tablets were placed in the ark together, which teaches us that the broken parts are just as important as the whole parts, even when it's hard for us to see the beauty inside those broken parts. Only children look forward to growing older. The rest of us, we wish we could stop the hands of time. We try all sorts of acts, from hair implants to plastic surgery, but not a one of them makes us one day younger. But what we do have is the power to choose. To choose how to respond to our own aging and the aging of those we love. We can dread it, or we can embrace it. And as children that will need to care for aging parents, we can also dread or embrace it. As my friend Rabbi Naomi Levy teaches, growing old can feel like a curse in a society that idolizes its youth. But each and every day, when I look in the mirror and I see the gray whiskers popping out of my beard, I too realize that one day, my kids are going to make a bowl for me to eat from. What do I want that bowl to look like? What do I want it to be made from? Caring for parents comes at a difficult time in our life. And no parent-child relationship is exactly the same. We are loaded with challenges, and honoring our parents and honoring their wishes, their best interests, can make us feel like we're always walking a maze and always walking into walls. But one day, in a few more Rosh Hashanahs, with God's help and ours too, we're going to be there. And we're going to need to learn that eventually we will see things from a new perspective, from a different angle. God... On this new year, we thank you for our gift of life. 
We thank you for the ability to create sacred relationships with those that have earned wisdom, earned wrinkles, and earned experiences. As we show our love, God, deepen our compassion, tighten our sensitivities, and make us less frustrated, so that by honoring our parents, we are also honoring you. Mostly, God, may we realize and be grateful for the inevitable truth that this Rosh Hashanah is not only a marker that our loved ones are getting older, but that we are getting older too. Teach us to embrace that truth just as we embrace you in this new year of 5771. May each gray hair offer new compassion. May each ache show deeper appreciation of love. May all of that bring us closer to you and to each other. Amen. Shana Tavah.